Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Thanks to our Patreon supporters, as ever, extended version of this episode and all the other episodes is available to you. Uh, if you're not already a Patreon supporter, go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to subscribe. As you're probably aware, Robin is off on tour at the moment across the US and Canada with Brian Cox on the Horizons tour. And you can keep up to date with what's going on on that tour and Robin's book challenge to read a book by an author from every city he visits on that tour on his tour blog on cosmicshambles.com. Go to the blog section, go to Robin's blog. And there's also videos uh, that he's recording in each city. That's on the website and also on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Cosmic Shambles. So make sure you check that out. And now let's get straight to today's episode. Here is Robin and our special guest, Lauren John-Joseph. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, Josie uh, remains on uh, maternity leave, but she'll be back very, very soon. Uh, please support us via Patreon if you can. There we go, that's the plug done. Uh, now, uh, the person I'm going to talk to now is uh, a, a quite brilliant author, and their debut novel is... Uh, I, I, Well, we've already spoken, actually. We were at the, uh, at the, at the Larm Weekend Festival, um, where we talked about Jackie Collins, but I still feel we didn't talk about Jackie Collins enough. I uh, there was uh, This author had uh, in their hand uh the jackie collins rock star with a beautiful kind of airbrushed cover of what, what was it it's, it's lauren john joseph by the way i should say and uh, we're going to be talking uh about a fantastic novel at certain points we touch what so rock star what was the cover again i, I can't remember the cover was actually all blue um and then the the title rock star was written in a sort of lipstick font um, and I did not get very far with that book because um, I actually had borrowed it from the hotel in Lawn where we were staying. Do, do you ever do book swaps? Do you ever do that thing where you go, well, I'll leave this book and then I, they won't mind? I, I'd say my novel and, and Rockstar are equivalent. So I could have done that, but I didn't have enough copies with me. Oh, that's a pity because that would be because I got I, a, a whole series of shows all came out of the fact that once when I was in a little cottage in Cornwall, they had a Mills and Boom book called Stormy Vigil. And it was uh, about a young woman who goes to a lighthouse where there's uh, quite an angry lighthouse keeper who used to be her English lecturer. And uh, they don't get on for the first five chapters. And then obviously they do. Um, and it ended up, I, I, I used to just, I became quite obsessed with reading out from Mills and Boone books with quite bombastic classical music behind it. And, uh, and sometimes Philip Glass and stuff. This is reminding me of that uh, Robert Eggers movie, The Lighthouse, was it called? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Wonderful. Not far from a Mills and Boone itself. Um, and talking of reading romance over uh, classical music, have you ever had the misfortune of listening to Barbara Cartland's album of love songs with the London Philharmonic Orchestra? <gasps> no, but I will now. It's staggering. It's her, you know, every girl dreams of a dream lover. Dream love or your romance. She cannot sing a note. It's horrendous. But you've got the full orchestra 
just fighting along in the background, trying to somehow do whatever Dame Barbara is doing as she does it. You can you can hear the royal jelly on her lips, I would imagine, Ooh. keeping her in the. Because uh, I think I think a friend of mine needs to it, it, keep me under wraps, but I think there's going to be a biography of Barbara Cartland coming out. Um, wow. And and I think it will be uh, quite. It, it's a bit like Craig Brown. I don't know if you know Craig. Craig Brown wrote a, a kind of biography of Princess Margaret, which is not normally the area that I'd be interested in. But it's sure. just ni- ninety nine stories, mm-hmm. some of which are, are really quite you know hideous. But it's 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 a, yes, one of those kind of books. But let's yes. talk about your book. Um, now, I wanted to start off in terms of talking about your performance art as well, because, again, you, yes. you have done a lot of, uh, in, in, in terms of, of, of creating art, you've gone into many different fields. And as we talked about before, I, I love the fact that one of the things your book is, is an art gallery. And mm-hmm. how how you set about creating, because I think it is a very, very visual book, Um and how much of that sense was with in terms of all of those different rooms that we walk into all you know because photography is of course a very important part of it as well as some of the kind of the art events um yes uh, absolutely i mean i as you say i have a background in performance art and also visual art um and often in fact there were images that i had in mind for the narrative and textually and that I had to work towards on the page. Um, but then there are also quotations, literally quotations where I have taken a real life work of art and placed it in the novel for discussion or a turn of phrase will remind a person of an artwork. Or for example, there's a cityscape at night in San Francisco, which reminds the protagonist of um, Paul Klee's architecture. And so there's just a constant um, oscillation between like a, a visual image and a textual image. Um, and yes, it does form a kind of kind of gallery. And when did you, what was, where, where were the first art galleries that, that, that you remember going to? I mean, I, I was thinking, I know you were brought up in Liverpool and, and the mm-hmm. Walker for me has always been a, a, a fascinating place to visit. Yes, I can remember going to the Walker as as a kid and being quite amazed by the by the sculptures. Actually, I was really quite amazed by the sculptures. And I still, whenever I'm in Liverpool, I always go back to the Walker because it's a really magnificent building. Um, I also used to really love. There's a smaller gallery in Southport of um, I think it's largely 19th century um art and a lot of art that would have been painted in the northwest too so less huge names but still a lot of beautiful things that i would see and i i seem to remember they have a couple of henry moores as well so yes i had i had quite a rich cultural upbringing growing up in liverpool because you know it's a real it's a really important place culturally and and you've said in the past here in interviews that you you do see it being such an important part of of the person that you have 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 become. Oh, absolutely, yes. I think um, on 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 a number of fronts. Um, as a writer, I think I picked up so much from the amazing stories that I would hear, um, and the the ear for dialogue that that's very present in Liverpool, and for gossip, and just generally for collecting stories. Um, but also, I think from growing up in Liverpool, I, I think I picked up a very specific kind of socialism 
which um, is still very, uh, very much at the forefront of, of my life and my identity now. It it does seem to me that, uh, I don't know how you feel about this as someone actually from Liverpool, but it still seems to be a city that people don't really understand. And that, you know, mm. I, I, th I think back to when, you know, Boris Johnson said those things in whatever spectator column, etc. He was kind of critical of, of and, and it it does feel to me always like a, a really fascinating and, and this it, there is Liverpool and there is the rest of England. And absolutely. Liverpool is always such a thorn in the side of a conservative government because um, they they just will not give in. But they have an amazing tradition in Liverpool. You know, when I'm. Um, uh, Oswald Mosley went up to Liverpool um, to try and get support for the British Union of Fascists. He thought he could rely on all of the, um, all of the, well, basically the Irish Catholics. Uh, to, he could sort of play them off against other poor minorities, specifically uh, Jewish immigrants. And he was booed out of town. He had, he left town with a bloody head because people threw rocks at him. And since then, the line has been drawn in the sand. Recently, after Brexit, there were there were marches that tried to go to Liverpool to celebrate Brexit or to you know to push for even a, a more conservative agenda. And the train station was surrounded, and people couldn't get out of the train station. You know, Liverpool is a is is it's a bastion, and people are very dedicated, and not just in a sort of online petition way, but they'll tell you how it is, and also like live it as well. Yeah, I think it's it uh, it it was a, a wonderful moment. I remember, you know, having played it many times as a comic, and you kind of try to get the gist of places. And I think last time we talked a bit about, you know, Belfast and Glasgow was similar for me in terms of suddenly it clicks and you go, oh, now I'm beginning. Now I'm just beginning to get it. It's like mm -hmm. it's home of one of my favourite bookshops, which I'm sure you know, News from Nowhere, which I think is is, is a fa fantastic, yeah. you know, feminist cooperative bookshop with an incredible variety of of, of you always will find something you had no idea existed when you go into that shop and you know that you need right now that's really the beauty of bookshops though isn't it uh you just can't match it for stepping through the door and almost having a book call your name i i feel like my life uh, or definitely my writing practice has been fundamentally altered by those moments being in a small bookshop in in wales and finding patrick white for the first time in the used corner and just thinking what on earth is this um, and just falling in love with his writing. And likewise with um, Nocturnes for the King of Naples by Edmund White, which I found for really like five pesos or something in Mexico City. Um, and that had the biggest impact on my book because he's writing in the second person. And as soon as I read that book, I knew that it was the correct way to approach this book. And I had been struggling for the longest time with the tone. Um, but without having walked into that bookshop and, you know, <laughs> managed to say in my, my very poor uh, Spanish, eh, Disculpe, ustedes tienen algos libros en inglés? And then, you know, being pointed to the corner of the five books, which were, I think, like Edmund White and then, I don't know, a biography of Cardinal Wolseley. And, um, you know, the camera on or something, you know, I'm thinking, OK, well, <laughs> I'll go with the end of my life. 
That's so. So when did I mean in terms? Ed, Edmund Well, I, I think is yes, yeah, such an interesting author and felt like such an imprint for me. I mean, I, I, we talked about this before uh, again, which was in the night. A lot of your book, even though you are uh, considerably younger than me, is 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 stuck in a period of my kind of teenage years. You know, there's a lot of the tentacles of the 1980s that mm. seem to 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 stretch out uh, from there. Well, yes, I think that's because you know things just. They keep coming back around, don't they? There's um, the 80s seems like one of these decades that just hasn't gone away. Like, it's had so many revivals, hadn't it? Hasn't it? There was a big sort of like mid 2000s revival with like Electro Clash, and there's been subsequent revivals of the 80s. And certain figureheads as well seem um, there's a sort of romanticization, isn't there, of the 80s as being the last time we had real subcultures, the last time there were, you know, real artists before it just became, you know, TikTok algorithms ruling culture. Um, yeah. And so so I think that's what it is. There are there are characters from the 80s who orbit as perennial kind of um underground demigods in a way that I suppose, you know, um if how, how how someone like Oscar Wilde has gone on to sort of exist as shorthand for a kind of you know life outside the limits. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because we, you know, Derek Jarman, I think, is uh, mm. always hoping. I know there's a new uh, anthology that's come out taken from some of his diaries, which I hope means that more people will find Derek Jarman because for me, that that footprint in the in the the eighties and going to the Scala Cinema in London where they would show The Tempest and things like that were just in, incredibly important. Kind of, you know, you know, that first time. I don't know for you, that first time that you see something, maybe a film, uh, where you go, oh things can be like this too you know because we're brought up on a certain limited you know yes. number forms of kind of you know popular art and then sometimes you go to the weird little cinema down the road uh, when you're a kid and it's like you know John Waters Pink Flamingos I remember mm -hmm. just you know I'd, I'd been thinking about it ever since I'd first seen that image of, of, of Divine that f famous in, in, in the, the, the last dress uh, that Divine wears and um, then actually seeing it in the Scarlet Cinema I was like I didn't know things could be like this Cinema has the most incredible power to do that. Um, I've had a number of moments with with movies that have really made me rethink everything. Uh, I remember seeing for the first time the movie by the Coquettes, Elevator Girls in Bondage, and that blew my mind because uh, I just couldn't believe they'd gotten away with it, that anyone had allowed them to make this film. Um, but also uh, I remember seeing for the first time Joan Crawford in Mildred Pierce and being absolutely amazed by that movie. Taking a, having, it actually watching that movie made me think, ah, there is maybe a point to cinema because, you know, on a childhood of, I don't know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and constant Batman reboots, then seeing something like that, I was like, oh, wow. And really, I would say that's where a love affair with cinema began. So who are, I, I won't ask you for a top five, but, but in terms of the, those images that have, have influenced you most and the, those directors and, 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 and writers and performers who have influenced mm -hmm. you most, who, who would you say they, they've been? Across all fields, directors, writers and performers. Well, just I, I suppose, but, but what I should have said is films. <laughs> uh, and then you could have chosen okay. whether it was directed. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I would definitely say... Um, Casabetti's um, and Jenna Rollins and 
John Crawford and Robert Altman, uh, Fassbender, and oh gosh, yeah, Derek Jarman. Oh, Fassbender is what, what's that incredibly depressing, even by his standards? <laughs> that it's it's the one of the guy who basically wins the lottery. It's, uh, and he then gets taken in by a group of people who just fleece him for everything he's got. And he's this loveliest of characters who's utterly yeah. destroyed. And I remember starting, that was the first of his that I ever saw. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was going to be a happy film. You know, I'd made a mistake. I'd not read anything. I was like 15. I just thought this is going to be yes. it. And then you go, that bit where you go, oh, it's not a happy film. Um, no, a lot of his films are very, very depressing. Um, but they bear such an they have such an indel, indelible stamp of his way of working um and that they're every single one is different and every single one is brilliant i mean i don't think i've seen them all actually because he just made so many what, what about books what, what were the books that became the first kind of things that would do more than just something to read but something where you you could start to feel the importance of them for you um, as a kid, I really loved uh, fantasy fiction because it's what my mother read. So I really loved, first of all, Tolkien, and then I loved uh, Terry Pratchett. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're, they're the first things I really loved and couldn't wait to get on to the next. <laughs> After that, I, I guess it probably would have been someone like Truman Capote. Actually, in between, there was Jake Arnott, and I loved those Jake Arnott books. And when did you, in terms of as an artist, when was the time that you wanted to start? Well, you actually thought, this is something I really want to do. This is something I want to create. I want to create something for an audience. Um, always. I've always, always felt that. I always thought that that's what I was supposed to be doing. And it, the real difficulty has been to find the opportunities, not to find the ideas, you know, I've never been stuck for ideas, um, but it's been able to pragmatically manifest those ideas, I suppose. So I knew since I was a child that I wanted to to write and make work for an audience. It just took some time to be- persuade anybody to let me. <laughs> Where were the first places you persuaded people to to let you? Um, on stages, actually. Um, so uh, when I was studying in California, um, because because I was British, they just carried so much weight there in California. And so we, I would tell a few lies about all the stuff I'd done in London, and nobody ever checked. So people would say, oh, well, you've, you've already done that. Sure, you can do this. And then when I got back to London, I had this, you know, <laughs> list of venues and theatres that I'd performed at in California and people were like wow California you've been doing this in California and so yeah I, I just did, did that the, the, there's a lot less gatekeeping um, in you know experimental performance circles than, than there are in publishing <laughs> mm. or even in, in conventional theatre. What were the favourite kind of venues that you have at the certain places where you just have a tremendous fondness for? I remember I used to love performing at a place called the Center for Sex and Culture in San Francisco, which was run by Dr. Carol King. Um, and that was always an amazing place to perform because it had the most um, amazing combination of people. You would have someone like Dr. Carol King who would give lectures 
um, on, you know, sex, sexual identity and, you know, pretty academic topics. Uh, and then you would have someone who is like 75 years old and was like a real like old fashioned San Francisco acid head, basically come on and do some sort of slam poetry, barely able to stand up. And then someone had come on and play the ukulele and then, you know, then then I could do a little monologue. And, it, and they were really wonderful places to learn and to meet people, really inviting, um, a really inviting space. Also, there was a great anarchist bookstore on the other side of the bay in, in Berkeley, uh, where they would have experimental movie screenings and then performances and and again you never knew what was going to happen the only time I ever really went to evenings of performance that were as exciting as that were in Berlin when you would go and someone would be playing 17th century music on the lute and then someone else would you know come on and like stand on their head and uh, it would become like some sort of yogic durational performance or you know you'd have someone who was had stowed themselves inside an armchair or something and that was the performance and it would all, all be happening you know in the basement of a bookshop you know and it would cost you two euros to go to and it would start at two in the morning so yeah so very very febrile places well that's what I, I wondered now about you know your feelings about England in terms of where there are the countercultural spaces and whether because t to me I find it hard to to find them but that might be because you know age and just not knowing how things are done. but you know when I was growing up and there, there used to be lots of places where again you would see those you know whether it was loot players or a man standing on a block of ice trying to melt it in 20 minutes is you know mm -hmm. one of one of the most famous of the alternative comedy acts he would just stand on a block of ice each night he'd get hair dryers and hammers and all manner of things and then he would explain what number block of ice it was that had defeated him this time and, and people loved it and then there was a point where certainly in that kind of cabaret world it became predominantly men telling observational jokes mm -hmm. uh, I would say that yeah there's there's there are still countercultural spaces um, for sure um, they there's always something amazing happening up in Tottenham the, even through the lockdown there were holding this big rave up there and there's the party adonis that people also love um so there are spaces that are that that are still there um in terms of performance i think that there has been an unfortunate explosion in the popularity of certain queer forms like a drag um so there are endless drag branches and endless you know drag competitions and I think the suggestion of professionalization or that this is a viable career, uh, which it's not. <laughs> I think you have to be very lucky to make it your career. Um, I think that has that has dented people's expectations and sort of sort of encouraged people to be slightly more professional in their output and maybe less experimental. Uh, but honestly, of all the places I lived, I have never found London to be the most exciting. I never thought that London was really on like the, the vanguard of anything. London is a great place to buy and sell, but it's it's not a great place to, you know, find inspiration. That's for sure.
And now, now that you've written at certain points we touched, do you see, Will, in terms of the art that you most want to, or, or do you still see yourself as crossing many different kind of areas, or are you beginning to think more and more that, ah, writing is, in, in terms of, you know, novels is where you would want to go, or do you still want to go to many different places? I think that having having written this, that my I do feel like my focus has narrowed somewhat, um, specifically to text-based work. So I'm I'm I've started making notes for the second book, and I think this is going to be a, a long-term path for me, a long-term vocation, writing novels. I am still interested in writing for the stage, for sure, but um. I don't think it's that unusual to write for both. I often feel like maybe Joe Orton is a good model. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm also interested in writing for the screen too, in again, like, I don't, Joan Didion did. Uh, so I don't, I don't, I no longer think that I'll be working in maybe um, experimental performance. And I don't really think that I'll be working much in visual art, but I think, yes the written word is really the, the center of my focus now in novels and hopefully screenplays and, uh, and, and, and stage work too. What was the genesis? I mean, you, you, you say in the book, this story has possessed me. I'm entirely at the mercy of this book. Obviously that's not, you know, that, that, that is within the book itself, but mm -hmm. that when did at certain points we, we touch, what, what is the genesis of that? How many can, can you see those kind of the, 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 the different frayed knots that came together to make it? Well, yes, actually. Um, so the protagonist of this book uh, is trying to come to terms with someone they lost um, and is unwilling to face it, but gradually is forced to. And that is pretty close to uh, reality. I lost someone I was very close to in pretty much the same way as the protagonist loses someone. Um, and immediately after he died, I felt almost compelled, like I have to write about this, but I, I, I thought it was, I thought it was kind of vulgar. So I resisted myself and I, I thought it was an unsympathetic thing to do and a selfish thing to do. And I just did not want to do it. Um, but the entire time I tried to resist, I felt this ever growing compulsion. I, I couldn't outrun it um, until eventually I sort of gave way <laughs> and said, okay, fine. <laughs> I'll do it and just sort of handed myself over to the story and I'd been making notes for a long time and collecting ideas for characters and remembering things I'd seen and um, thinking about people I'd met and wondering what had happened to them and sort of folded it all in a bit like baking really like remembering someone's smile and remembering a, a joke and then using all of this material to sort of knits together uh, um, um, a story that centered around this very real loss but um, building up a world around it that would hopefully um, have enough gravity to to pull readers towards it which I think it has done it seems to have really affected the people who've read it yeah I, I think it does I think it uh, I, I, I think it from the very first sequence that very first walk that we take you are you're traveling with 
those two people and then traveling with that one person who mm-hmm. makes that decision that night and it's um and i did I, I found it i mean it's interesting about that distance of time between your actual loss because i know you've said it's not auto fiction and and did you kind of was that part of it that there is had you tried to write it in the immediacy of, of, of the loss in the immediacy of grief that you might have merely done a replication of what actually happened and 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 the reality of it but as the distance came you could also create another world that still dealt with that emotion but not necessarily such solidity of those real people exactly yes i think if i had written about it when it happened it might have been a a short story or something like this um but it took me all that time to build up a world that um readers could enter into and spend enough time in that when when the loss happens when the death happens in the book that they really feel something um as opposed to you know how you might feel reading reportage or a newspaper article about something sad that happened so there's a lot of um manipulation that goes into writing a novel you know you have to pace yourself and really be careful about how you ratchet things up and the level of intimacy that you're creating between between yourself and the reader that I that I don't think I could have done straight away I, I also I just didn't want to I didn't didn't want to to write um a memoir um but what I did realize about this book is that there's the the protagonist and the lover they lose and then there's a sort of third character and the book is in a way a love triangle between three people and each one has a slightly different understanding of what's going on between the three of them. And I came to realize whilst I was writing it that um, in a way I was using it to investigate something else from my past, which has does not appear in the book at all. There's, there's no reference to it. There's, the, the, it's not um, replicated at all. Um, in that when I was in my teens, my mother's husband left her for her sister and they had this weird love triangle as well. And I could never understand at the time, like how this was possible, like how somebody could be so underhand as to like run away with their sister's husband or to leave their wife for her sister. And writing this love triangle, I realized was kind of an investigation of that. And having written it, I sort of looked back in that situation and thought, oh yeah, like things are much more complicated than you realize nobody in that situation set out to like destroy somebody's life um but people do awful terrible underhand unthinking things every day and and in a way this book became a way to investigate that um though it doesn't it's not obvious in the novel that that's what's happening but i think for me it was it was an investigation of that real pivotal moment in my life because after that happened, um, my my nan died, the family split down the middle, and we left Liverpool. So that affair had like major ramifications for me and my whole family. Um, and I had never really tried to process it, but in writing this book, I did. Did you realise that, I mean, was there a point where you were writing that, you were exploring that story, but you had no idea that you were, and that in that process of writing, you suddenly, because I'm always fascinated where sometimes it's not in the writing, but, you know, I've spoken to authors who go, I now look back at the book I wrote 10 years ago, and I actually realised what it was actually about, and it wasn't on that, and, and I think it's an interesting thing that yes. sometimes in different points of writing, people can go, oh, this is this thing that happened to me, or this is this tragedy, or this is this joy. 
I think it came about, I realized that in the edit, actually, that um that's what I was doing. I was trying to, not even trying to do, but that's what, that's what was happening. <laughs> I thought I was writing about one thing, but I was actually processing something else. And it is uncanny the way that happens. Writing does have that potential if you've ever experienced, experimented with things like uh, automatic writing or, or uh, cut and paste or exquisite corpse or any of these things, what you, what you turn up is really unsettling. I've always found that I've found it interesting in performance where I was just recording something last night of radio show and, uh, and the producer is a, a very old friend of mine. And, uh, and he said, he's, he'd made some notes out of some other recordings he had of me. And, and I went, oh, that's a really good extra line. Did you come up with that? He said, no, you came up with that. You said that. And I find, I know it's a different, except, but still that bit where in the, in the midst of a performance, you can then later on find someone coming up going, I really like that bit. And you go, oh, that wasn't me. They go, it was. Mm-hmm. You go, that, now yeah. where was that, who was that person who came up with that very, le- I had a very, you don't need to know anyway, it was when I was playing Leicester, some very lengthy routine apparently involving a, a dachshund and diarrhoea and I have no memory of what this was about, but apparently I spent 10 minutes with this rather <laughs> uh, preposterous thing in, in, in involving also an old man in a kimono. But there we are, some somewhere, it, it was only meant to exist in that basement room in Leicester and now no, it no longer does. Um, I was also, I was, I, I love, I mean, the, the, as I've mentioned before, the, the number of, of quotes in the book as well. And, things, and I wondered about your process. Do you have a small pocket? Like Aris Murdoch, there's a wonderful line. I think I made a note of it somewhere uh, where you talk about uh, the ghosts. Uh, whereas it's impossible for the human mind to dominate what haunts it. Yeah. Um, and I wondered, are you someone who, when you, you know, reading a book suddenly goes, do you know what? I'm going to pop that down in a little pocketbook now. Endlessly, endlessly. I drive everybody insane um with this nonsense i am forever saying to my poor boyfriend i just need to make a note and i have different notebooks for different things there's usually three or four on the go there is a little red moleskin book that fits inside a pocket that i take with me i have an orange notebook at the moment um for this book and talking about this book and the things that come up about talking about at certain points we touch and a red one for the next novel and then there's a general notebook so yes, constant, constant notebooks. I'm always um, dog-earing pages and thinking, ah, must make a reference to that later down the line. It just came up and um, I was reading Isabel Allende's uh, A Portrait in Sepia and all the way through that, I was like, mm, nice idea, perfect, great, yes. <laughs> Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. And um, what about, uh, yeah, I, I have, uh, my, my room just basically looks like a kind of serial killer's room because I've got thousands and thousands of postcards that I've just scribbled little notes on, many of which no longer make any sense to me whatsoever because I've never learned that you need to put more clues than the few words that are mm. in my mind at that particular uh, moment. Um, I would also you, you've talked about the, the, the musicality of the way that you write and, and yes. the importance of music. So, so how, how do you feel that that process comes um, simply from writing and then reading it out loud, because I <clears throat> most of my early writing was for the stage, 
and now I know if a sentence is right, if it sounds right. And the the, the funny thing is um, is that you can realize, oh no, it's not working. It's not working. Okay, now it works when you've tinkered with it and without really really understanding why. And then if you revisit the sentence after you've made it work and it sounds right, then you can go through and say like, oh, I see what I've done here. Previously, I was mixing my tenses or I should have been using the subjunctive, but uh, but I don't look at sentences like that. Even though once they're, once they're fixed, they're more likely to be correct. I only do it by ear. I suppose it's a little bit like learning a language. If you're too fixated on the, you know, the logical function of a language, then you're slow and you stumble all the time. But if you start speaking a new language and you're just doing it by ear because it sounds right, then you're much more easily understood. And I think I do the same thing um, with writing actually, but um, I don't I don't really want to be hung up on the technicalities of it. I'd rather just follow the music it's a little bit like um, if you watch interviews with uh, Maggie Smith and someone says to her, oh, you're so great. However, did you do that? She's, she'll just tell you to shut up and be like, don't ask me. If you ask me, I'll, I won't be able to do it again. You'll break it. No, don't talk about that. And also she doesn't watch any of her own movies. Yeah, I think that I, I can totally understand that. That's the... Uh... Just finally, I was going to ask, in terms of uh, what you're reading at the moment that's particularly that you particularly enjoyed. Um, well, yes. What am I reading? I I'm currently reading Isabella Allende, um, Portrait in Sepia, which I'm kind of enjoying. I understand why she sold so many books um, because it's I don't know. It's not far from like. Uh, grandmother romance and although our listeners won't be able to hear the the cover as my boyfriend said um it looks like the kind of book someone would would leave out in an airbnb <laughs> <laughs> um uh, I, i'm not mad about it but i'm strangely stuck on it and this endless endless family saga um it doesn't have a great deal of um depth to it you know people just say no, I'm moving to Colombia with a laugh, you know. Um, before that, I just finished reading The Cry of the Owl by Patricia Highsmith, who's someone I've never read before. Um, basically, I'm on a kick of reading books by authors I've never read and feel I should. And when I find them in a charity shop, 50p, I sort of say, ah, now's my chance. Uh, well, you I did enjoy the Patricia Highsmith. You did enjoy it or you didn't? Yes, I did. I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got a Patricia Highsmith that I'm about to sell as well. The uh, it was one with a, a, a lurid pan cover from the 1960s that was irresistible. But so you can give me some advice because on on the tour that I'm about mm-hmm. to do around uh, the US and, and and Canada, I've decided I'm going to attempt to read a novel from every single city that I visit. Um, right. I don't uh, necessarily have to read it entirely while I'm on tour, but I have to start it within that yeah. city. So uh, San Francisco. What should I? What, what's the? There's, there's so so many. It's like New York and San Francisco are very difficult. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, written written there or by an author? Who's it from it there can be uh, written there or it can be about there. It doesn't. It can be poetry. It can be non-fiction. It can be fiction. Mm, well, I guess you could read some Mark Twain, right? Um, or Joan Didion, actually. 
uh, yeah, who else from San Francisco? Or I think is Kirk Reed from San Francisco? How I learned to snap, or or Matilda Sycamore Bernstein has got a bunch of interesting things. Excellent, thank you very much. That's the yeah. I've only You're got welcome. as far. I've got as far as New Haven, I think, so far in terms of getting my mm. my books together. Um, at certain points, we touch. When's your tour? Oh, uh, start Shit, next sorry. when next Wednesday. Uh, wow. We start in, but I'm not kind of. I'm, I'm off with. Um, I, I do tours with the the scientist uh, Brian Cox, and and we're kind of. But I'm I'm in a really like odd place in terms of just going. I haven't done this for two and a half years, and I don't know if I can face you know the travelling bit of each night a different hotel. I've just suddenly mm. gone. Oh no! I think I've lost the knack of how to do it. But it's you know it's fun. We go to Washington, Philadelphia, New York, New Haven, Boston, up into Canada and around and Salt Lake City, where I've never been before. I've only ever changed planes there, so mm. I haven't yet chosen what the book obviously there's a very obvious choice for salt lake city but i'm not going to read the book of mormon uh so or even an osmond's biography but uh yeah i'll find something there but yeah it's quite quite weird and are you doing i should ask you is are, are you uh are you doing any more live events for this book um i will be yes um i don't, I don't know what they are until the dates aren't confirmed yet so <laughs> Oh, well, you have a website, so I advise people to go and check that website, and also advise people to read the book because it's a, uh, it it is as I, as I said before, you 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 travel immediately, and it's uh, yeah, it's one of the most it's one of the, I don't I don't often get time to read novels apart from in in little and and to, that nice thing of having to read this because we were doing an event together, and I was like, oh, I don't know anything about Lauren. I wonder what this book will be like. And then within three pages, I was like, oh, I'm so glad that this is the novel that uh, I have to read because I want to read it. That's so great to hear. So I recommend it to everyone who uh, is listening to this uh, podcast. At certain points, we touch Lauren John Joseph. Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Lauren's book is out now at all the usual places. We obviously recommend Hive to support your local bookshop. Back next week with another new episode. Our guest next week will be Rachel Paris. So looking forward to that one. In the meantime, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Like, review five stars on Apple Podcasts and beyond. Have yourself a great week. Stay safe. And we'll see you soon. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.